the PREP Act, what it protects, who it protects, and when it applies. Eric Swanholt from Foley & Lardner is here to give the skinny. I'm Lawrence Coletti, and this is Legal Talk Today. Hello, listeners. Welcome back. It's great to be here with you. Our show today is about the PREP Act, and of course, that is short for the Public Readiness and Emergency Preparedness Act, and we're going to learn how it works and why it's still valuable as we continue to fight COVID-19. We have a wonderful guest joining us today. We have Eric Swanholt from the law firm of Foley and Lardner joining us. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Lawrence. Happy to be here. I appreciate your time today. Thank you for coming on to talk about this. You know, we've been, um, just in our past episodes, Eric, we've been talking about uh, liability associated with COVID-19. And you know, so we've covered some of the ins and outs of vaccines. We talked about some of the frontline workers in hospitals and of course, reopenings. You know, there's a, kind of a tricky thing there and the whole act of shutting down, you know, we kind of created this new vector of liability. So there's some challenges with some businesses reopening, but I got to look at the PREP Act. And as I understand, there's been some amendments and I wanted to check in on that one because I really realized there was something related to tort that we hadn't quite gone over. So wanted to start with this. You know, uh, I know there's a lot of people out there that probably don't know a lot about the PrEP Act. Like me, I don't know a lot about it. So I was wondering if you could just kind of give us the, just sort of the general ins and outs of it, and then also maybe give us a little bit on its history. Sure. Happy to. As you said, the Public Readiness and Emergency Preparedness Act, right? We call it the PrEP Act. Uh, It's been around since 2005, and it came uh, up in response to the avian flu crisis. And it essentially was the Congress's uh, effort to encourage the fast development and deployment of medical countermeasures during a health emergency, right? So as you know, the FDA has a long process to vet and test and confirm the safety of vaccines and other pharmaceutical products. And sometimes in a health emergency, you don't have that kind of time. And so the goal was to encourage manufacturers to do this by limiting legal liability relating to that manufacturer distribution and administration of those, you know, uh, vaccines, they call them covered countermeasures, such as testing and treatment and vaccines. What's interesting about it to me is that before the PREP Act, manufacturers had a form of liability protection called the learned intermediary doctrine that basically said that if the manufacturer warns the doctor, the doctor can then warn the patient of whatever risks are associated with the vaccine or a drug. And then the manufacturer is off the hook and the doctor then has responsibility because the doctor is the one who knows the patient and whether or not the vaccine or medicine should be used. However, over time, an exception was made to that rule that we call the mass vaccination exception, right? Where in a mass vaccination process, patients just line up to get their shot. They don't really have interaction with their physician or healthcare provider. And so they don't get that advice of the learned intermediary. And so the court started to say, hey, well, in this context, the manufacturer should be liable for vaccines, for injuries stemming from vaccine use. And that started to cause manufacturers to pull back. So in response to that, the PrEP Act was born. And as you said, you know, it addresses liability or tort liability for injuries that come from vaccines, for the most part. It's, it's sweeping, uh, very broad, and uh, I'm sure as we'll discuss, uh, you know, it's got some, some specific terms relating to its enforcement and application. But, uh, you know, as enacted here in this context, it was energized by the Secretary of Health and Human Services on March 10, 2020. It became effective. It was retroactive, so effective February 4, 2020. And as you said, it's been amended four times. And there have been uh, the General Council of Health and Human Services have provided advisory opinions six times on the PREP Act. But so far, it's led to maybe more questions than answers. But, uh, but it's out there to provide that immunity uh, to those manufacturers of vaccines. 
Yeah, it's really fascinating how some of these uh, acts and regulations come into that sort of sort of that ebb flow of participation versus public protection and sort of the uh, the boundary, and the fight between those two priorities. And so, as I understand it, this uh, particular act has, you know, two pretty critical terms. You know, one's covered persons and the other one you just uh, mentioned just a little bit earlier, the covered countermeasures. I want to start with covered persons because this is a special definition. gives a lot of meaning to the way that this act is implemented. So can you tell us the significance of covered persons? Right. And, and just in terms of framing it, right? So under the law, a covered person is immune from a legal claim for loss if it has a causal relationship with the administration of a covered countermeasure. And when you say person, that means an entity too, right? Right. So that covered person is, a, is an important term, as you say. And so it means manufacturers, distributors, entities. It's defined within the act to include also a group called program planners, who are those that supervise the programs that dispense vaccines like hospitals or clinics. Covered persons also includes what they call qualified persons, which for the most part are healthcare workers. And interestingly, you know, because it was uh, drafted in 2005, it didn't include some of the ways in which we administer medicine now, one of which is telemedicine, right? Telehealth is very popular, particularly in a stay-at-home world. And so one of the amendments that we mentioned actually broadened the term covered persons to include pharmacists and telehealth providers uh, under certain terms. So it's intentionally broad to uncover as many folks in the chain of those that provide vaccines, tests, and in this context, PPEs in the COVID world. Let's turn that same analysis to the covered countermeasures. Now, whether you fall inside the covered countermeasure or outside, the amount of protection you get is significantly different. Right. If it's not a covered countermeasure, you don't have the immunity protection of the PREP Act. And like covered persons, that definition has shifted over time. Generally speaking, a covered countermeasure is you know, a test, a vaccine, or other measure to treat, mitigate, or cure COVID. Right. And so it also applies to the administration and provision of vaccines. Right. The limiter is that whatever the countermeasure is, for the most part, it needs to be either FDA approved through the standard regulatory process or authorized through the what they call an EUA, which is an emergency use authorization. And there's been plenty of those uh, lately. But that's the way that the act tries to make sure that when we're talking about a covered countermeasure, it's something that has received at least some level of vetting and analysis by you know, the regulatory agencies that we believe uh, provide some level of protection. Interestingly, again, it's been amended to include PPEs, which have been more critical in this crisis than in the past. And specifically, the CARES Act came uh, with an amendment to the PREP Act that specifically included the N95 masks that are so popular today. Well, I have a quick follow-up on that. You know, and I read the articles that you and your colleagues at Foley and Lardner put out there. And I'm going to put those in the show notes because I think that really provides a lot of really great information. But what I thought was so interesting is that you could have a facility out there. Let's say it's a nursing home that's fighting directly, or maybe maybe it's better to put a hospital in there, fighting directly COVID-19. And so you've got, you know, like you said, the PPE, you're trying to administer all of the, uh, all of the treatments that have developed over the course of the last year or so to fight COVID-19. But there are actions in there that are directly related to medical medical care that might not apply towards this particular covered countermeasure. Can you can you give us an example, like in that sphere, you know, a hospital providing services to patient, what would fall into covered countermeasure for COVID-19 versus what would fall outside of that covered countermeasure? Sure. And this is going to be one of the interesting areas that we look at as courts start to interpret and apply the PrEP Act immunity as cases get filed more frequently going forward. And we can discuss that a little bit in a minute. But 
So a good example of a covered countermeasure would be right the use of a ventilator for a COVID positive patient in an isolated pressurized room, right? That's the kind of treatment that's uh, FDA approved that serves to mitigate and treat COVID-19. If down the hall, uh, a patient was suffering from a heart attack and did not receive the necessary attention because the hospital was focused on treating COVID patients and providing resources in that regard, that failure to provide uh, service to that heart attack patient or, or to provide uh, insufficient or you know, below the line uh, treatment would not be protected by the PREP Act because it is not the application of a covered countermeasure, but instead something else. Yeah, that's where the interesting lawyering part comes in mind when you have a case like that. So let's break off in that a little bit. You brought up the notion that, you know, just because something is a covered countermeasure does not mean that a patient's out of luck if they encounter an injury. So tell us about that. Right. So the PREP Act uh, met with some level of controversy uh, during its the legislative uh, debates, in part because there were concerns that those who were injured, which is inevitable in these contexts, uh, would be left without a remedy. So part of the PREP Act was amended to include what they call the Countermeasures Injury Compensation Program, uh, which is a fund that uh, was specifically set up to provide compensation for those who are hurt. Injured patients, uh, there's an administrative process that they can apply through. Uh, they have to prove that their injury was caused by the vaccine or by the covered countermeasure. Uh, and in that context, then they'll receive compensation through the program. What's interesting about it is, to me, there's already a, what they call a vaccine injury compensation program that is also heavily funded and heavily used, and it is more for childhood vaccines like MMR and polio vaccines, uh, and only applies to listed vaccines. And of course, because the COVID vaccine is so new, it isn't on there yet. So it still remains in this countermeasures injury compensation program. And it'll be curious to see how many claims are made upon it. There's about, uh, through the CARES Act and through HHS's own uh, budgeting, there's a, uh, over $30 billion of money available to that fund, though not all of it will be you know, used for it. Well, I've just got a couple of minutes, but I do want to get through a few more questions. And so, Eric, if you can help me out with this, you know, so as I understand it, the PREP Act has been around, and correct me if I'm wrong, since 2005, but there's been this uh, accelerated case law development that's really provided a lot of meaning to it, especially in terms of COVID-19 in just uh, recent times here. So can you just walk us through kind of, that's a sort of a strange history. Can you walk us through that real quick? Right. It is odd. It was established in 2005. You are correct. And between then and 2019, there were only three cases interpreting it, none of which were all that noteworthy. Uh, since then, over a dozen cases and orders have been issued. And the results actually caught the attention of the Secretary Azar of the HHS because they fall into two buckets. One is whether the cases belong in state or federal court. These are all filed in state court. Two is whether or not the failure to use or choice not to use a covered countermeasure uh, warrants immunity. Uh, and so the first bucket is really about federal jurisdiction and whether or not any interpretation of the PREP Act falls under the federal court's authority. Uh, and so far, the courts have said no. It, it, so long as the plaintiff's claims are state law claims, the, the courts have said that even if the PREP Act is a defense, that those claims are state law claims so that the, the cases will remain in state court. Similarly, with respect to whether or not the failure to use a countermeasure is preempted or immune under the PREP Act, courts have said that the PREP Act covers injuries that caused by covered countermeasures. So if an injury was caused by a failure to use a covered countermeasure, it's not immune and not subject to the PREP Act. In both instances, the secretary came out with a new amendment to uh, the PREP Act stating, one, 
that there can be situations where not administering a cover countermeasure to a particular individual can fall within PREP Act and liability protections of it, which is interesting. And two, he really tried to make clear that the PREP Act, any claims relating to the PREP Act should be heard in federal court. He doesn't have the ability, the authority to confer federal jurisdiction, but from this declaration amendment, it's very clear that they want federal legal policies to be decided by the federal courts, mostly for uniform interpretation purposes, but I think it'll be interesting to see how the courts respond to that. So far, one court has ignored that direction. Well, you all did such a great job explaining this in your piece. And so here comes the tall order part of the question. So if you could, in a minute or less, summarize those amendments that you know, kind of broaden the base of understanding, provide, I guess, additional clarity on the definitions that you know would obviously trigger a claim for a case. Can you walk us through that? These amendments are, are new, but they do open up a lot of options and do provide a lot of clarity. Right. Well, I think that you're right. There are a lot of them. And I think the key amendment, from my perspective, is that originally the countermeasures had to be provided through one of two channels, either through a federal government contract or through an authority having jurisdiction. It needed to be authorized by one of those two channels, which is limiting, right? If you were a company that makes widgets and you wanted to stop making widgets and start making PPEs to, to pitch in and help the community, you might not be able to do that with this immunity if you don't have an authorization from an authority having jurisdiction or the FDA. Now, this recent amendment changes that to allow for a third channel, which is a private business channel, so long as that private business is operating consistently with the guidance from the FDA and the authorities having jurisdiction. So to me, that's a a very big broadening of those groups that are protected by this. All right, last question. And I have a feeling I'm going to be asking this question a, a lot for uh, future episodes for a little while here. And, you know, obviously we have a incoming Biden administration that's already in place and, you know, they're going to be doing things their way. And so what do you envision the impact of the Biden administration when it comes to the future of the PrEP Act here? Yeah, this is always interesting and a great question because, as you know, with the administration's changing focus on regulatory compliance and on corporate governance tends to change. We know that the prior administration presented a uh, lesser, let's say, focus on regulatory enforcement. We understand from President Biden's background and from some of his early choices uh, in terms of leadership of consumer-facing agencies that there will be really some aggressive protection of consumers. And that will be in contrast to what we have just seen for the last four years. And so he's got to contrast that to his goal of eradicating and dealing with COVID, which, you know, to do that, right, he's got the mask challenge. He's charging HHS with improving state local compliance. He's implementing the Defense Production Act on vaccines and tests and masks. And so he wants to do that and to do that and continue to have corporate America's buy-in, he needs to continue to provide the level of immunity that the PREP Act provides. So it'll be interesting to see if he continues to direct his secretary to continue to broaden with amendments and advisory opinions, or if he tries to retract or narrow it going forward. It's going to be uh, an interesting tension to watch going forward. Well, Eric, thank you so much for joining us. I really enjoyed our conversation today. Thank you very much for having me. It's been fun. And thank you listeners for tuning in and making this show part of your day. We're going to go ahead and cite our sources that we talked about earlier for this episode in our show notes on LegalTalkNetwork.com so you can read for yourself. And also a big, big thank you to our team producer, Molly McDonough, for always searching out the stories and our LTN crew for their continued hard work making us sound groovy. This is Legal Talk Today. I'm Lawrence Coletti. Have a great day, everybody. Thank you.